0: My name is Michael Hildebrand and I'm the director of the Upstate Mobility Alliance. We are a nonprofit focused on making the upstate of South Carolina a vibrant and connected region in the areas of transportation and mobility. Today we have Lawson Wetley, president of the Greenville chapter of the League of Women Voters with us. Good afternoon, Lawson.
1: Good afternoon, thank you so much for having me.
0: No, thank you. So first Lawson, why don't you just share a little bit about your background and then the purpose of the League of Women Voters.
1: Sure, so I have now lived in Greenville for over twenty years, so I, I think of it. I'm not exactly a native, but I'm native adjacent
0: yes.
1: and um, absolutely love the upstate. love to be here. Um, I've been with the League of Women Voters now for about three years and served the the as, as we all know from volunteer based organizations to positions of leadership tend to be a hot potato that we catch. Yeah. But very happy to be involved with the League of Women Voters, which is as of this year, a hundred year old nonpartisan organization. We emerged out of the women's suffrage movement. And we focus on voting and civic access. And we are, you know, for women and men, but again, historically, you know, came out of the women's suffrage movement, hence women voters.
0: Absolutely. Well, Lawson, I think your vision is one of the best I've ever seen, and I really do mean that. And so your vision is, we envision a democracy where every person has the desire, the right, the knowledge, and the confidence to participate. Talk about some of the work that you do that helps you to achieve this vision.
1: Absolutely. And this vision is part of what made me fall in love with the League of Women Voters, because I think it is a recognition both of the importance of civic engagement, right, democracy is not a spectator sport, with also a recognition that it's not just about sort of technical stuff about the vote. It's about people being empowered in real ways to have meaningful access. So the League of Women Voters, for example, just thinking about the Greenville League and what our policy priorities are, of course, in this season, we're focused on voter information. We're doing candidate forums. We have an online voter guide at vote411.org. We're doing our best to get the word out about how people um, can vote. But we also prioritize those policy issues that help people, practically speaking, access their civic power. So, for example, we're a member of the Upstate Mobility Alliance because if people don't have access to transportation, you know, how are they going to go about their lives in a way that makes them meaningful civic participants? And as another example, we support quality public education, which, you know what I mean? It's not a direct voting issue, but it is absolutely without a quality public education. How can one be meaningfully a civic participant?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, my background, I spent 15 years at the sheriff's office here in Greenville and I was really surprised early on in my career the number of people that I would encounter and we had these forms that people would fill out and I'd give a form to somebody say well I can't read that can you read that for me Mm -hmm. and so I mean you're right I mean these issues around education and transportation are things that sometimes we don't think about when we think about voting but they really do have an impact on how people can engage
1: Oh, 100%. And I think as a very much related point, one thing that I see over and over again, and I think it's especially obvious in a presidential election year, is when people think about elections, the presidential election kind of sucks all the oxygen out of the room, right? And so people are like, you know, do I want to vote? Do I not want to vote? Who do I want to vote for? And they just mean the presidency. But like here in South Carolina, we're voting for a sheriff. Right? I'm going to be voting for a school board member where I'm going to be voting for a county council member. And, you know, I saw recently that something like 80% of the decisions, you know, the governmental decisions that make an impact on our daily lives are made at the local and state level. And so for me, you know, one thing I I often hear the question, you know, I'm trying to convince somebody to vote, you know, what should I tell them? And I'm like, well, you know them.
0: (laughs) You know them better than I do,
1: honestly. I'm like, but the thing that makes sense to me for all of us is for all of us, there are issues that we care about. We care if our kids are safe in school, right? We care if our roads are working. We care about how development is happening. And this November, we are all electing people who are going to be making those decisions on our behalf. You know, so it's that, it's that informational piece of really connecting the dots between electing those people who are going to represent us the, the way we want them to or not.
0: Sure, no, and and you know I think uh, this year, especially it, it's been really interesting because of covid um, and you know the the back and forth with the courts about how are we going to handle the mail in or absentee voting? Do you have to have a witness signature, do you not um, and and you know so I think a lot of these kind of issues that we're seeing right now are, are, are probably barriers that you guys have been trying to overcome for a while. What are some of those barriers, you know, like, I, you mm-hmm. know, when I think about COVID, I never really thought about uh, worrying about your health to show up when you vote, uh, you right. know, you get sick or not. But that's obviously a barrier this year. What, what are some right. of those barriers that you work
1: well, and, and one thing I'm going to do, I'm going to do a quick shout out to some good things that, have, that our elected officials have done in South Carolina, wow. which I really appreciate. Um, for, so, for example, our state legislature, um, we in South Carolina are one of only, I think, 16 states that generally require people to have an excuse to vote absentee, that we don't just have universal absentee voting. P.S. We should, um, you know, and that can come in later years. But where we are right now is we are a state that requires an excuse which is a barrier but our state legislature much to their credit our governor much to his credit recognized that in a covid year like this one it is not everybody needs the ability to vote without showing up on election day and subjecting themselves to a potentially you know infected That's person right. in a crowd and so our legislature i believe unanimously Um, passed a bill that allows all South Carolinians to vote absentee, which means that every single South Carolinian can vote absentee in person. Here in Greenville, starting, there's one location open already, and starting Monday there will be four more locations where people can go just show up and vote, bring your ID, vote early, right? Everybody can do that. And so that's a good thing. So our legislature very sensibly removed a barrier that, you know, they didn't necessarily, you know, it was a choice of theirs and a great choice. And I applaud them for it. With that said, you're absolutely right that there are barriers. And those barriers are best described as vote suppression. And one thing that is the case about vote suppression is that it is death by a 1,000 small cuts, right? It's making it a little bit harder in a bunch of different ways to vote. And one example of that is requiring a witness signature on mail-in absentee ballots. So for those who don't know, here in South Carolina, if you get a, a ballot by mail, you, the voter, fill it out, of course, you sign it to you know, say that you voted, great. But you're also required to have someone else sign that ballot as a witness and put their, you know, sign their name and put their address. Now, we have nonpartisan elected officials. These are the actual experts in our state. Local election officials, state level election officials all have said this serves no purpose. So, you know, the, the witness doesn't have to, it could be a two year old, it could be anyone. There's no requirement, it serves no purpose. There's no ability to go check who the witness is. It does not protect the security of our elections in any way. But of course, having to go get someone sign your ballot exposes you potential for people living alone. Like, this can be a real barrier. And our state legislature not only refused to take away the witness signature, but litigated that point all the way up to the US Supreme Court to make sure that it stayed as a requirement, which, by the way, given that it's been a back and forth, creates voter confusion, yeah. which itself becomes a barrier. And I just want to highlight that example of something that makes it a little bit harder to vote, adds a little bit of confusion to the process, serves no positive purpose whatsoever, is opposed, again, by our actual election officials, that's vote suppression.
0: Yeah, no, I I think you really hit it home. I mean, it's it's the confusion more than it is nearly anything else. It's, you know, what am I supposed to do? What can I not do? Um, Mm -hmm. No, I think that's a really great point. So I want to go back. Uh, you mentioned that this is your 100th year anniversary, and uh, it also coincides, like you said, with the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So let's talk a little bit about trends with women voters. What, mm-hmm. um, what have you seen in the, in the recent past? You know, I, I see uh, in general, they'll always talk about voter turnout. Mm-hmm. They tend to report that number, which is very, very low. But when we talk specifically about women, what do you see? What are some of the mm-hmm. trends um, with women in voting?
1: So one thing that's very interesting to me, we've done, so um, the reason why we've been around 100 years, we League of Women Voters, is because the 19th Amendment, which removed gender restrictions from voting, um, you know, was ratified 100 years ago. So that's the connection there. And um, one thing, uh, with apologies, I'm going to dork out just a little bit, but just to give people a sense of suffrage in the United States, um, what we started out with here in the States was only quite property-owning men could vote. So like in our first presidential election in 1789, only 6% of the U.S. population satisfied those requirements. So that's, yeah, so that's where we started from. And so if you look at the road to suffrage, which continues because because we continue to have restrictions that we need to fight against. But if you look at the road, it's, you know, the removal of property restrictions, which was final in the 1850s, Um, The removal of race restrictions. So the 15th Amendment, which um, prohibited race from being a barrier to voting, was finalized in 1870. But P.S. Jim Crow laws in places like South Carolina kicked right up six years later. Right. And so true racial access um, didn't come until the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s. And again, there continues to be race-based vote suppression now. But so, if you look at it, it's this whole history, right, of removing property restrictions and race restrictions and gender restrictions. And it's always been, you know, sort of a long and grinding and sometimes two steps forward, one step back kind of road. One thing that I find fascinating, just thinking about women and voting and When the 19th Amendment passed and we say women got the right to vote, one thing to bear in mind is really that means white women, because there continued to be race restrictions on African-American women, Asian-American women, Native American women. So, you know, even then, it's not like all women really got the right to vote then. But even so, what people thought was going to happen was that women were going to change the dynamic of voting, right? That women were going to jump in and have sort of womanly perspectives, womanly concerns. I, I don't really know. And for a long time, that really didn't happen. It was actually a big disappointment to the proponents of women's suffrage who thought it was gonna make a bigger, more meaningful difference than it seemed to. So like female voter turnout was pretty low for a while. The reason why that was was because the civic culture was that only men should be in the political civic sphere, right? Yes. As an example, here in South Carolina, um, well, we, by the way, didn't ratify the 19th Amendment until like 1968. But we continued to restrict women from the civic sphere in other ways. We were the next to last state to let women serve on state juries. South Carolina did not allow that until 1967. Oh my
0: goodness. I didn't right. know
1: right. we, that. Oh, it's crazy. And I mean, again, next to last. Mississippi did it the next year. But this whole notion of what is the right sphere for women was that women belong in a private sphere. Not in the hurly burly of the political world, and I think that itself. So, for example, I found that up through the 1940s or so, women turned out to vote at much lower numbers. Again, mostly white women because most other women couldn't vote. Yeah. But it seemed like that sort of stereotype, or you know, that that idea that women shouldn't play a role worked for the women of that era. Okay. So, so first of all, there was generational replacement, and women started to vote more. What you really have found, though, is that starting in the 1980s, there's a real gender gap. Um, You know, women definitely now think of ourselves as civic participants. We're more likely to turn out. We're a bigger share of the population. We're amazing. Um, (laughs) But also, um, and especially black women, by the way, I mean, black women are just amazingly participatory civic actors, um, despite, again, racist vote suppression um, attempts that are sometimes successful. But also there's a there's been a real gender gap in how women vote since the 1980s. And I think people think that's because it was in the 1980s that you started getting these kind of culture war elements okay. that attacked, you know, reproductive rights and the idea of not having a social safety net. And so when you look at the I mean again, this is you know, of course we're all individuals and it's not like all women feel the same way and all men feel the same way. But women tend to be more supportive of, for example, a social safety net. Women tend to be more supportive of environmentally protective policies. And when you look at the kind of partisan divide on those kinds of issues, one of the things that has happened is that women are sorting. So there's been a gender gap. I think in 2016, there was an 11-point gender gap um, in terms of how men and women voted in that presidential election. Uh, Okay, Yeah, and I read something recently where in 2020, they're expecting the gender gap to become a gender canyon. You know,
0: a much, much greater divide than I think
1: in look at in looking at the polls, I think they're expecting about a 20 point divide between how women in general and how men in general vote. And I think the divide is biggest among white Americans. But there's still something of a divide in all racial and ethnic groups along gender lines. And with apologies, because i you know, I love this stuff and I love to talk about it. But I want to, I want to note a corollary point, which is that, it, you know, because there are there are gender differences as categories in how people see policy issues, and as a related point, representation matters. So, as a corollary point, we're talking about civic participation, meaning voting, but looking at civic participation in elected officials. You know, it matters. So when you get women in office, they are often going to bring a different perspective than men do. You know, when you have black people in office, I'm thinking of, for example, Senator Tim Scott, right, who is able to get up and say, like, hi, my experience as a black man is that there are concerns about police treatment, you know, and just bringing our own lived experience to the table as voters, as legislators, as all kinds of things, it matters. And we're stronger when we're more diverse.
0: Because it gives, it gives that diverse perspective. Everybody brings their own background to um, and experiences to, to what they do. And, and I think that's, I mean, I think it's a really important point that you make because we, uh, we pride ourselves as a nation on being diverse. And uh, unless you have that diversity in opinion and experience, You don't really benefit from it
1: it's so true and there's one example that always just kind of tickles me but you know it's wild so our state legislature here in south carolina um, is very non-representative in terms of gender there are many 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 more men than women Um, there's all kinds of reasons for that but that's where we are right now and there's this great organization. Um, it's uh, REN, the Women's Rights and Empowerment Network, that focuses on issues relevant to women and girls in South Carolina. So, one of the bills that they um, that they pushed for, and I believe successfully accomplished, was something to get to require insurance companies to pay for a year's worth. Of birth control for women. Okay. And there's all kinds of reasons to think this is a great thing. It, frankly, no matter what one's political perspective is, it gives you know people more control over family planning, it reduces unwanted pregnancies, which also tends to reduce abortion rates for people who are you know anti-abortion. It's there's a lot that's great about it, and there was a hearing about it in the state legislature, and I believe all of the legislators who were you know making you know gonna vote in the hearing were men and one issue that they raised was well but if you let women get a year's worth of birth control pills aren't they going to sell them on the black market oh and the women God. in the room just start laughing because that's not a thing right
0: no i, I never arrested anybody for selling birth control <laughs>
1: it's right but if you but if you have a room full of men right who don't think a lot about the daily practice of taking a birth control pill or whatever you can I mean and thankfully there were women in the room to say that's not a thing and the guys listened and it didn't derail the legislature but to me that's such a great example of the way just lived experience or the absence of it can lead to better or worse results
0: yeah so Lawson one of the things that uh, from the first time you and I talked um, that has really just drawn me to you is just your um, enthusiasm for the issue. And I I hope that people that that hear this uh, get that same kind of enthusiasm. And I really hope that what this does is help uh, attract people to to the legal end voters. So how can people uh, find out more about your organization? How can they get involved? What can they do to help?
1: So thank you so much. Um, we, the League of Women Voters, um, we exist at the national, state, and local level. Our local branch here is the League of Women Voters of Greenville County. For people who might hear this um, who are in other parts of the upstate, there's a branch in Spartanburg and in the Clemson area. Um, the easiest way to find us, we, we have websites. People can find the Greenville League on Facebook. We are at Greenville L W V, and we are an all-volunteer organization which you know, one thing that I love about that is we're all doing this because we care. <laughs>
0: you,
1: know? so you can't look at us for like a big budget. You know, <laughs> We're not going to have a big shindig, but we are absolutely a grassroots organization just trying in our daily lives to make a difference to help connect people to their civic power. Um so people can you know again find our website, find us on Facebook. Um, please feel free to share my email address. I'm Lawson at gmail.com. And you know for me, I do care a lot about this. I feel like for all of us we have different seasons in life and different things that we care about. And the best we can do is assess in a moment what little difference we can make and then do that and then feel good about it. And that's what I'm trying to do. And that's what I would love to help other people do too. It's just to help people figure out what they care about, how they can make a difference and then do it and then pat yourself on the back because you deserve it.
0: Perfect. Lawson, anything else you want to say before we, before we go? Vote. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect way I, to say.
1: Exactly. And, and, and more at length, I actually hope, um, I really want to emphasize just the practical point about voting in the upcoming election, including in all of the races, you know, please find out about your school board candidates. Um, please find out about your county council candidates. Um, you know, I'm happy to help you find that, but vote411.org um, is one way to do that. And I really encourage everybody to vote early in person, if possible, you want to get your vote in, you want to minimize the risk, and you want to make it as safe as possible for the people who have to vote on election day. So even for those who say, I don't mind standing in line, every single person who votes early makes a space in line for somebody else. So vote ideally early.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Lawson. Have a good day.
1: Thank you so much.